Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. Oh, come on, we can do that better. Come on. Good morning, good morning. There we go, there we go. Hey, if we haven't uh, met one another, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to begin, even before we jump into this gorgeous text that was just read over us, I want to first begin just with a moment of prayer. Um, Chances are really good if you've been around Christ Community for a minute now. You've probably heard about some of the transitions happening at our Olathe campus, that campus pastor Reed Kappel, a friend of mine, um, will be transitioning away uh, from the Olathe campus and This has been a journey uh, for some time now with many folks speaking into that process. Um, Simultaneously, though, I want to make it abundantly clear there has been no disqualification or moral failure in the midst of that transition. Um, And because we are one church across five campuses, when one of our campuses is hurting, we all hurt, right? There's not like, oh, there's this thing going on downtown, or there's this thing happening over at Brookside, or there's this wonderful thing happening at Shawnee, or what have you. Like, our deepest wounds are our shared wounds, and our greatest joys are our shared joys, are they not? This is what it means to be the church across the city together, unified, and even as we think about our unity of the church across the globe. And so I want to begin just with a moment of prayer as we enter into this text together just for our sisters and brothers at Olathe in this time. God Almighty, we are grateful that you are a good, good Father. Just as we were singing today, Father of kindness, you're just never-ending mercy. Whatever our experiences with our dads, whatever ill-equipped feelings we have if we are dads, um, spiritual fathers or earthly fathers, what have you, the dynamics of all of that is that we realize you are the perfect father. And we're just barely grasping at the extraordinary bounds of your love. And so God, we come here first just interceding for our sisters and brothers in Olathe who are going through pain, wrestling through um, conversations, wondering what to do next. And even As we share that pain, asking those questions here, how we can support our sisters and brothers, how we can be one caring family of multiplying disciples who seek to influence our community and world for Jesus Christ. Would you guide us? And now specifically as we look to the text, (laughs) 
Oh man, this, this prayer that Paul prays. God, give us wisdom. Holy Spirit, give us more than we even have eyes to see, but may our bodies, may we feel the weight, the beauty, and the joy of what the Apostle Paul is praying here by the power of the Spirit, and may it make us more enlivened as we walk with you, not away from you, not alone, but walk with you into the purposes, the callings, the relationships, and roles you've placed us in throughout the week. God, we can't do this without you, and we deeply expect you. So may you work in the ways you've promised to. In Jesus' name, we pray these things, and by the power of the Spirit, and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Well, one of the gifts uh, I get as a pastor is I get to sit down with a lot of people in the midst of questions and pains and heartaches, and I feel deeply honored in those spaces. But here's something else that I think is fascinating when I'm in those spaces, almost always, almost always, and I, I'm, I hesitate, I, I'm almost willing to say always, but almost always at the root of whatever we're discussing, whether, whether it's a theological question, whether it's a relationship that's in ruin, whether it's an addiction that's got a stronghold, and yes, even in seasons of deconstruction for some, at the heart of it, a key question, and really it's a question I wrestle with myself, if I'm honest, if I'm actually not just trying to lead others, but just being honest about my own heart, my own walk with God, is this. Does God really love me? Um, I mean, how can he love me? And, and why would he love me <laughs> when I think of me and the things that I've done or the places I've been or some of the history and dynamics of the people to which I belong? I think of even Isaiah's, you know, when he's confronted with God in Isaiah 6. And he goes, I am a man with unclean lips from a people, you know, who have unclean lips. Like there's this dynamic of not just me, but the reality of the human race and the brokenness in which we embody. And, and I'm utterly convinced in the midst of all of these conversations that one of the hardest things to grasp is to, is to know that God loves you more than you can grasp because you'll never just figure it out. It's not like just a light switch moment. It's not something you get possession of. Love, right, isn't something you possess. <laughs> it's not an object that you can put in your pocket or something you can stick up on your shelf. I've been reading a really exceptional book by Belden Lane called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. Ooh, right? Um, <laughs> it's an intriguing title. But he's exploring how Christian mystics, especially throughout history, are drawn to these really desolate places of mountains and deserts to actually have a deeper understanding of God's love. And this is what he has to say. He says, love cannot exist so long as it remains an object to be possessed. It's born only in the letting go of all grasping and being grasped. It has an utter surrender, an utter freedom to it. And this is why lovers, right, when they start to go talking about their love for one another, where you got to go? You got to go to poetry, friends, right? Poetry doesn't bound love. It gives you a window into the greatness of love. And you go, well, this is an illustration, but it's not really even getting all of it. And this is why love also, when you see someone who's full of it, you, when somebody's really full of that kind of love, you, you, you can't help but, but be drawn in. And it comes in the most surprising of places, 
It's not like you can come with a resume as to what this kind of person is that's going to have this kind of love because you'll get surprised if you're looking for it, if you're aware of it. It can come with talking with a homeless sister or brother in an off-chance conversation and suddenly you feel more loved by them than you felt by anyone in a long time. Simultaneously, it could be with a philosophical giant who you think is going to be so heady and abstract that all he can think about is ideas, but suddenly you realize his heart is just as big as his head. It can come from a grandpa who never had college or a high school education, but always shows up to your games and is in those moments with a listening ear, constantly aware of the unique dynamics of who you are. And it can also show up and a zealous college student who's maybe naive about the realities of the world, but excited to ca- carry on the purposes of God, right? Like, in the one sense, it doesn't have like this clear cut, like, oh, this kind of person has it. Instead, you just notice it, showing up in all different kinds of people and all different kinds of walks of life. But you do know it when you see it. So how do we grasp this kind of love? A love that really avoids being grasped, avoids being objectified, avoids being tamed. Especially when it feels like it's out of reach. And I say it feels like it's out of reach sometimes because cognitively we can be aware of those four letters, L-O-V-E. But the reality, the experience, and how it sinks down into your bones, right? It's very physical. It's very visceral, People who feel loved, you can feel it in your body. And even though it may feel out of reach, I'm not saying it is out of reach, but it can feel that way for a whole host of reasons. And I think there is no more important question, reality to explore than God's love. Because the moment that God's people get carried away, consumed by God's love, that's when God's glory begins to break in. His love, unleashing his people to actually experience the fullness of who they are because of the fullness of God's presence and his love. And it actually goes about shaping them and the people around them. And so that's what we're going to explore. And listen, if we're going to ever go about reconstructing faith, which is the journey we've been on, walking through this letter to the Ephesians, we have to reckon with the reality of God's love. So let's take a look together. If you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some on the table back there. We believe in God's Word, and we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word for themselves, to be diving into, to put, you know, markings in the margin, for it to be both a place where God's speaking to you and a place where you can speak back to Him through journaling and underlining, whatever you need to do. Um, We want you to have that as a resource from us. And so when we come to Ephesians chapter 3 in the passage that was just read for us, we find the Apostle Paul where? On his knees. And and listen, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I come to the text and I see the Apostle Paul, I bow my knees. I think, is this a literary tool, right? Sometimes we're singing songs up here and we say, you know, I've got my arms open wide and we're all got them in our pockets. Like, is this a way (laughs) to talk about like a metaphor of being open? No, the Apostle Paul is on his knees, especially in a Judeo background. It was very full-bodied, right? He's on his knees, the sign and symbol of full-bodied reverence and awe. He's in prayer before the Father. 
And he goes on to say, the father through whom all, all families and every father's really ever got their names, this, this glorious sovereign father who is magnificent, that every father, if they really do sit and kind of contemplate what they long to be, at their heart of their hearts, the way we were designed is that we really want to be like that father. Or if you've had a father and you felt like, hey, that wasn't because they're human, exactly the way it ought to be, what you're really shooting for is the relationship with the heavenly father. He's on his knees before the father. And and whenever we're on our knees, whenever we come to prayer, prayer is basically this statement. I can't. That's what prayer is. I can't. You have to. So whatever the apostle Paul's about to pray about, it's an admittance that you can't. And we've got to come to terms with that. I can't. You can't. But the father can and then he says what? His glorious storehouses. He's going to the Father, the one over all families, over all of history, over all of time. And he's got these glorious storehouses. And he goes, I want, I want God the Father to grant something to you. Because he can. You can't, but he can. And this is what I can't stress enough. When it comes to the love of God in Christ... We cannot grasp Christ's inexhaustible love alone. We can't. Sometimes we tell ourselves, you know, if I just do my devotions enough, right? If I study enough, if I pray enough, if I read enough books from theologians, then I'll finally be able to grasp Christ's love. And hear me, I'm not saying those things are bad. We ought to be studying our Bibles. We ought to be praying. We ought to be reading thoughtful theology from people from different backgrounds and at different points in history to have a robust framework for God's love. All that, yes. But what I don't mean to say is that somehow if you study enough, if you pray enough, then you've earned God's love. And I think we are just so good at fooling ourselves. And this is where we get deeply frustrated. I prayed enough. I prayed hard. I studied your word, but I'm still not getting it. God, why aren't you giving it to me? I deserve it now. Like, I want to feel it the way I ought to feel it or the way I think I ought to feel it because I've done the work. Ergo, I deserve it. But that's not the path. The moment love becomes something you feel like you've earned, it's stop being love. Love is always a gift at its core. The moment it feels like it's something that's earned, it becomes transactional, it becomes business. And love is not business. But when you really do taste love, that's a true gift. The love that, the love that we're seeing here, when you actually get a glimpse of it, there's something that happens within us as human beings. Because we... Without fit, when you really, I mean, you really start to grasp the weight and the beauty of this love, and it starts to be revealed, there's a common response from all of us, and it's this, I, I can't, I don't, I don't deserve this. Like, whoa, whoa. We do this in human relationships, and you better believe we do it in the vertical one, in our relationship with God. People get close, and you're like, oh, I don't really, I don't really, I don't know how many times I tell people, you know, I love you, and they're like, no, I don't. No, you don't. And I'm like, hey, whoa. Okay, where's that coming from? I love you. No, you don't. No. Whoa. We start to experience love as a gift, and we constantly tell ourselves it's got to be earned. And it makes me think of the poem from George Herbert. He was a 17th century Christian poet. And he says, Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love observing me grow slack, 
from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I'd lacked anything. A guest I answered, worthy to be here, love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame, my dear? Then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. When we're really confronted with love, I mean the exhaustible love we see in God and Christ, one of our first responses is to sit back and to go, wait a second, I can't, I can't, who am I? And we begin to push back even against the wonderful gift of God, his inexhaustible love. And I want to just detail out because there's an important place that this particular passage has in the flow of the whole of the letter of Ephesians. Not only are we talking about reconstruction, not only are we seeking to understand what Paul's writing, but we want to understand how to read our Bibles better too. And this particular passage is kind of like a hinge. The first three chapters, the Apostle Paul is painting our imaginations. He's expanding our capacity for what it means for God to be working in the world and how we're a part of that. And then he's going to get super practical in the following chapters. This is kind of a hinge. And what he goes on to say, and I just want to give you a review here, as he begins at the very beginning in chapter one, and he's like, listen, I'm an apostle. What? By the will of God, God's working. He's calling me, and you're his. You're in Jesus Christ, and guess what? He chose you before even the foundation of the world, and even though you feel like you're not worthy, he made a plan to actually redeem you, to pay for your sins, to cover all of the brokenness that you're bringing to the table, and then he exchanges it with an inheritance that no matter what happens in your life, nothing can take what God has indeed given you, and then he's given the Holy Spirit to actually live within you, this eternal reality now coming to dwell and continue the work that he's began in you. And that point, the apostle Paul just starts praying and he's like, oh man, you guys don't even know. I got to pray that you start to understand this. And then he gets to chapter two and he goes, cause you got to understand where you were. You weren't just dead in your trespasses and sins, making a couple bad decisions. You were living in systems and structures guided by the evil one that blinded you to any other possible good. But God broke in, and then he made you alive, and then where did he put you? Where he's put Christ, at the top of heaven, at the seventh layer, at the very tippy top over all dominions and authorities and powers, and where does he put you? Right in there, at the very top. That is your truest reality, as you are seated in Christ. And then he went ahead and actually put out these good works for you to have joy and delight, to live into who you were designed to be. But not alone, because then he goes about creating a family, where those who are often seen as untouchable, the Gentiles, the mystery of this gospel now revealed, are included in you have an extraordinary family of a lot of the people that nobody else wanted. And he's saying, you're mine and this is my family and you're not going to be alone and we're going to walk through this together. And believe it or not, Jesus that he's seated on the throne over heaven, ruling over all of the cosmos, he's actually ruling in and through this ragtag group. And then you get to chapter three, verse 10, and he goes, all the wisdom of God. Yes, it's displayed in all of creation, but the best place to see that is here in this ragtag little church. All of this, he's like, do you get the love of God in Christ? And then he goes, no, you don't. And he goes, that's why I got to pray. Because if you really got this, 
I mean, if it was down to your bones, it wasn't just an idea you toyed over in your journal at night, but it was something that shook you to your core that when you showed up on Monday, wherever God had you, you could not help but say, God loves me though. Whatever came, but God loves me though. Do you know what he did for me? But God loves me though. It starts to change and impact the whole reality on who you are and how you show up and how you see what is around you. And so the Apostle Paul, he just prays, oh, that you would get this. You don't have the capacity to understand this on your own. And it's hard, right? Because we start to hear that. And the reason it's so hard for us to grasp this is because there's a lot of other counter stories that are being told too. You hear this story and you go, okay, okay, God loves me, but really? Why? Why do you think this? Part of this has to do with dynamics because we're all broken sinners. Sometimes it's really painful stories that your parents told you growing up. Maybe a sibling hurt you deeply while you were growing up. And these narratives that were repeated, you brought back a report card with A and it wasn't A plus. And so it was like, why aren't you working hard enough? Or maybe, just maybe, you were always seen as the person who got C's and that was where, and you were gifted maybe with other capacities, but because you didn't get certain grades, you were seen as a certain way. Or because you weren't gifted in this one thing, or you wrestled with this other area, or you struggled in this one thing. The one area you struggled came to define the messages that were spoke over you. And those live with you for a while. Maybe you saw broken love modeled where you were growing up, and that's what you thought was the pinnacle of love, so you started to dissipate or d- distance yourself from any sort of framework of love. And then, of course, there's just the narratives that, there's the narratives that are spoken over us, and then there's the narratives that leak into us. That's the many different messages of what an ideal man, an ideal woman an ideal son, an ideal daughter, an ideal spouse, an ideal coworker, all these things that leak in in ways you don't even realize. And then when you go to look in the mirror and you say, why would anyone love this? The pain. And you may not even say that out loud. For some of us, we numb ourselves so point that we don't even ask ourselves questions anymore. And so when someone comes to speak love over us, But not only that, not only are there the counter narratives that are spoken in or leak in, there's also the reality that we separate ourselves from each other so much that we lose the opportunities to hear of God working in and God speaking through those who are around us. You see, the horizontal and the vertical are always so deeply intertwined. There's one thing I come back to again and again just in my own life. It's like when... when when the Pharisees asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's never just one or the other. They're always deeply intertwined, and how you're receiving relationships horizontally is impacting how you're receiving your relationship vertically, and vice versa. There is a dynamic and an interplay. You can't just say, you know what, I'm going to get right with God, and then eventually I'll get right with others. Your relationship with God will consistently be hampered if you are consistently distancing yourself, distancing yourself from others. 
And so when we see this separation, which makes a ton of sense when you start to see that God is bringing Jew and Gentile together and he's making this community that everybody else says is crazy, right? That is a huge emphasis of this letter. And every letter the Apostle Paul writes is this diverse community actually on display that nobody could have foreseen coming. It's a massive emphasis in all of his writings. You see, when we distance ourselves from one another, then we don't get to see God showing up and someone who's different than you, and saying, wow, God loves them. And if he loves them in their context and in where they are, well, maybe he's going to love me too. You see, when we see God showing up in other people's stories, then it gives us an imagination for our own. And there's something beautiful about when you show up in church and someone looks at you, and sometimes it's the most unexpected characters, and they go, you know, God loves you, and I love you too. No, you don't, right? (laughs) But when we take ourselves out of that or the community becomes a secondary, tertiary, or just lackadaisical kind of engagement, we miss out on building the relationships where we hear God speak through others over us, his love, which we deeply, deeply need. So here's what we're going to do just for a second. Look to the person next to you and say, God loves you. (laughs) Now look to the other person. Look to the other person and say, God loves you. I know it's a little cheesy, but come on. You know you needed that today. Some of you are like, that's it. That's, I'm, I'm ready to go now, right? <laughs> we need to hear human voices echo what the divine is already saying. We need it. And so when he's praying, yes, there's something very personal about this, but this is a communal prayer. And we need it in our lives. We need to hear these voices of our sisters and brothers over us. And Paul knows Still, there's more yet to come. We cannot grasp Christ's inexhaustible love alone. So what is he hoping that God is going to grant? God the Father is going to grant through this prayer. Well, what we come to see again and again is this language of strength. You're strengthened. You're strengthened. These are actually two separate Greek words, but the, the kind of the metaphorical focus is the same. This is building up, and this language of power shows up again twice, right? So it's always God's power, and you're being strengthened. <laughs> There's this movement of in the midst of your weakness, the Apostle Paul is asking that God would supplant your weakness with his strength. His strength, strength that only he can provide. Once again, you can't earn this. You can't work it out. You can't do enough CrossFit to get this kind of strength. Can't run enough ultra marathons, whatever you do. I don't know. This has got to come from God and God alone. This is something he provides for us. And it intimately is connected to Christ, as you saw and heard the text read over us, him coming to dwell This is fascinating language because I think sometimes in evangelical circles, we push against the language of asking Jesus into our hearts, right? But that's literally what Paul's doing here. He's like, may Christ come and dwell in your hearts. (laughs) That he might come and dwell richly. Now, we might have some distortions around that. We need to get back to what Paul means. But there's this idea that Christ comes and he makes his home in us. And he dwells so deeply, so richly, so intimately that every nook and cranny of our lives, the very core of who we are, is directed by a shared love of his purposes. And really, a looking into the eyes of one another and a deep love of God and a deep receiving of God's love. 
It's this ever-growing surrender that he might take up more residence (laughs) in the heart of our homes and the home of our hearts. And we might say, you know what, you've been living in this room and you've kind of remodeled the kitchen. Can you also do the library? Can you also take on this other room? Can you, can you actually just, just dwell in the whole house and you tell me where you want me to sit? Because I know if you tell me where to sit, I'm going to see my house better than I've ever seen it before. And you're going to have to do some remodeling because even though I love where that picture's hung, I know it's not right. <laughs> Help me, God. Come dwell within me and the intimacy and the beauty. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of, you ever go to those, you go to weddings and, and like the, there's the DJ and he's like, I want to call all the couples, you know, out to the stage, <laughs> you know, and all the couples come out. <clears throat> and then suddenly he's like, if you've been married for less than a year, and then the bride and groom are like, Dah! you know, <laughs> that's always like, oh, that's us, you know, <laughs> wiggle up. <laughs> Sorry. And then it's like, you know, I'll get to the point. 10 years, 20 years. And then it's like 60 years. And then you've got like this sweet little couple and they're just like barely moving, right? Barely moving. Every now and then he might try to do the twist, you know? You think about that. It's not that they figured out love in their year 30. It's that they are learning the inexhaustible reality of love and they've reached new heights and they can tell that there are higher mountains still. And you look and you go, oh. Nobody looks at them and be like, I hope that's not me someday. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, that is, that's astounding, right? Or same way, I, I've got a dear friend of mine. We've been best friends since seventh grade, Thomas George. I had an opportunity to, you know, even go and do a little bit of vacation time, our family with his family over the summer. And, man, if anything happened to Thomas, I'm on, I'm on the plane tomorrow, tonight, like now. Like, you know, Caleb, you coming to preach kind of moment. <laughs> Always have a sermon in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's and even though we've known each other for years, I don't feel like we've exhausted the love of friendship. I feel like I'm just getting to know my friend. When we were together, it's like we're staying up till 2, 3 a.m. Just talking and like, Tom, do you remember? Tom, do you remember? It's just, I mean, the joys of that. And then to think in Christ, that goes on forever as a brother in Christ. Like the eternal realities of the inexhaustible realities of Christ's love now showing up in our relationship. It's a gift, friends. But even that is just an illustration scratching at the service of the love of God that he has directed towards us and that we have with him. And so Paul is praying, and he's like, (laughs) would you open their eyes, God? Would you actually come to dwell in them in a way? And and he's, he's anticipating, once again, so this is a Jewish and Greek community, first century that, you know, sometimes when we hear prayers, we might go, mm, you know, let's say, I'm an mmmer myself. Um, <laughs> but really, what this is, when this is being read in these little local churches, the Apostle Paul is even probably anticipating, like, an amen shouted out. So if you get in that mood, please bring it today. Amen. Thank you. 
He's anticipating, yes, come Christ Jesus, come dwell within me. Like as this prayer is going, the reciprocal nature of the community echoing and saying, that's not just Paul's prayer over us, for us, but it's our prayer from Paul, led by Paul to the Father. He's waiting for our amen as this prayer is being prayed. Because here's the deal. We will only experience Christ's love in areas of life we've surrendered. We have to be open to the Spirit. We have to recognize we can't receive His love even in our own strength. (laughs) You know, there's a fascinating dynamic when you're looking across uh, this letter to the church in Ephesus. And a, a primary theme is that over and over again for, through these first three chapters is that we are in Christ. That's a major focus. We are in Christ. We are in him. Where is he? He's seated up in heaven. Where are you? You are in him. We together are the fullness of his body. We are in him. But then suddenly here, the primary focus and the emphasis is that Christ is in us. So this beautiful oneness or as, as we are in Christ and Christ is in us and he's in the depths of your inner being. He's in your hearts. Christ is going so deep to the intimacy and the personalization of coming to dwell within you personally and us collectively as we are in him. There's something astounding. The power that's open and available to us that is God's that's now available to us is when we open our hearts to the spirit, when we trust Christ with those rooms we'd rather have locked off. And only when the Spirit is invited to mine the depths of our soul will Christ's love follow him there. Hmm? Go there. I know it's going to be painful, but I'm going to open it up. Please go there, because I know your love is better than I can even think right now. Right now, I th- I'm scared that your love's going to mean pain, and I'm scared that your love isn't going to be the best thing for me, but I'm going to trust you on this, right? So what are we to do, right? If, if we only experience Christ's love in areas of life we've surrendered, what are we to do? Well, let's look at verses 18 and 19 again. If you're looking in your Bibles here, the Apostle Paul prays, may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What are we to do? We are to surrender to a greater experience of his love. An amen to this passage is no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. It's the expectation that he has still more in his love for you. You haven't reached the peak. You've not arrived. But Christ's love has more to explore in the depths of who you are and for more, to you, for more of you to experience. And if you're here and you're exploring Jesus, this is the invitation you get, is that you get to go on extraordinary exploration of an exhaustible love directed towards you. That he's waiting for you to say, Amen. Please come, Lord Jesus. This is the height, the breadth, the length, and the depth of the insurpassable love of Christ. And sometimes even praying that we would have a greater experience of his love means surrendering even your best thoughts of Christ that you might have even more glorious thoughts of Christ. 
maybe to help us a little bit, uh, Pastor Caleb gave an extraordinary illustration in church for Monday class on Wednesday. And since I'm telling you that I'm stealing it from him, I'm going to steal it. So, um, <laughs> but may the, may the credit be due to him. Um, but may it benefit us all. Um, so does anyone, let's show that picture up on the next slide. Anybody know what this is? I didn't either until Caleb told us about it. Um, it's a hypercubus. It's actually the cross shaped as a hypercubus. And so um, it is a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional cube. Hmm? Now, some of you might be thinking, I didn't even know there were more than three dimensions. Well, this is very theoretical, and it steps into the world of mathematics. And, and what you have here, and I'm going to try to do this correctly. Okay, so you have over there to your right. Yes, your right. Right? That's your right? No, your left. Ah, I even practiced that this morning. Grace upon grace. Okay, so safe space. See, if you don't know your right from your left, you are home, okay? But over here on that side, <laughs> that would be a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional cube on a flat. So if you, if you remember playing like Mario, like on Nintendo, and it was like 2D, right? And so that's like two-dimensional, and then suddenly like Nintendo 64 came out, and then Mario gets to explore all different, and you're like, age, anyway. Um, that's a 2D uh, representation of a 3D, and then over here, uh, this, this, is kind of, this is a cube, a, a, a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional cube. And the idea is that when you look at the cross of Christ, it is so beyond what we can even begin to imagine. We are getting the divine love of God displayed on an earthly plane. And the closest we can come is to theoretical kind of framing of a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional understanding of the world that ought to blow our minds that at the cross, we have one of the greatest understandings of God's heart. And if you know what a hypercubus is, and I butchered it, please forgive me, right? I know Caleb's twiddling his thumbs like, oh dear. But here we have, if we go to this painting, if we go back to the painting, this is from Salvador Dali. It's his corpus, hypercubus. He was a surrealist. He was a part of the surrealist movement. And he really wrestled with his faith. There was a good season, actually, where he left the faith. He had a logical incoherence of what life was actually about, eventually felt like life was meaningless, very similar to maybe what our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes might have felt like, as some of you may, may remember, some of you, some of you might remember. But at the end of his life, listen to me, friends, at the end of his life, he came back to Christ. Because even in the midst of the questions, the incongruence and the lack of wrestling of like, what is the meaning? He saw the love of Christ was beyond his comprehension. And so if you're here and you're in a season of deconstruction, I hope you find hope that wherever your journey is, it's a, it can be a long journey, but his love is chasing you down and is pursuing you. Jesus' accomplishment is beyond what we can even fathom. And so this is why the Apostle Paul in verse 18 says we have to have strength to comprehend in verse 18, that you may have the strength to comprehend that you might have the strength, so God's strength to actually grasp the weight and the boundless nature of his love. I loved the way that Peter O'Brien, one commentator, writes. He says, they're grasping. This cannot be simply a mental exercise, so don't get this confused. Clearly, it is personal knowledge, and although it undoubtedly includes insight into the significance of God's love and the plan of redemption, it cannot be reduced simply to intellectual reflection. 
It's not just an idea. Paul wants them to be empowered so as to grasp the dimension of that love in their own experience. What does that look like? Well, a couple ways. You can actually begin to have a deeper understanding of God's love in the midst of darkness. In darkness, sometimes you lose something you deeply held dear. Something in the when you when you feel like you're in a dark night of the soul or a place of darkness, something that you cherished deeply is stripped from your hands, and often it is something that you feel like made you lovable. And then suddenly that thing that you thought, as long as I've got this, people will stick with me. God will actually stick with me. Maybe it's a calling. Maybe it's a particular job. Maybe it's a particular relationship. But the moment that's stripped from your hands, all you can do is stand before God as a naked self. And then he says, I still love you because I love you. And then in that moment, in the darkness, you have a deeper understanding and appreciation of his love. Because he's reminding you again and again, you're not earning it. You don't have to bring anything. And even if you feel like you've lost everything, you've not lost my love. Sometimes God's love in the midst of darkness feels like an intervention. You love the decisions you've made. You feel great about the trajectory of your life. But God's like pulling an intervention together and says, what you love is going to destroy you. That's love, friends. We want friends like that. We want family. We don't like it when they do it. But after the fact, you're like, oh, thank you for stepping in. I know I said a lot of things to you in that moment. But man, if you didn't step in, I don't know where I'd be. That's the darkness of God's love sometimes. And it feels painful and it feels hard. But he's going places you don't want to go. And he's taking you places you never thought you could go. Sometimes, and even for me in my journey, I think, I'm just going to give you a snippet of this. Because I'm not just giving you theoretical ideas. When we lost our first son, and I was in St. Luke's, and I go downstairs to the chapel, and I see these placards that say, if you have enough faith, you will be well. And I was like, not the passage for today. And I am weeping, and I'm saying, why? It was like 2 a.m., no one else was around. And then suddenly, with nothing, and feeling like everything was stripped from me, his love just came over me. And without any control of my own, I found myself singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. In the darkness and great loss, you get a deeper insight to God's love. Even there. But sometimes it comes in light too, right? It's the gift of a new friendship. It's the gift of a spouse. It's the gift of a child. It's a gift of a new promotion, in ways you don't even foresee. Like, for example, I, I was driving a, a favorite car of mine. It was a Volkswagen. It got totaled. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was back in, I think, April. And to the point where my two kids, I'm taking them to school, and my son Israel's like, my first car accident. And I was like, don't say that stuff. <laughs> he is my son. <laughs> I mean, they were the coolest kids in school, right? They got, like, the best story, but it got totaled. Um, and I was like, God, what are you doing? Okay, you've got us. I don't know how. It's not my normal MO, but I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to actually trust you on this. They lost my car for like two days. That was great. Um, it was a huge headache. This, I mean, everybody knows cars, used cars, new cars, terrible market, right? Terrible. Um, and I was like, God, I'm a pastor, right? You know what you called me to do. Um, but you've got this rich storehouse. I'm going to just trust you know what you're doing. 
And I got to know the city a lot better. I was taking public transit, learned about this app. I was riding my bike places. It was wonderful. I was getting rides with friends, building relationships. Two people come out of nowhere and offer me an extraordinary gift to help provide for a new car. This is what happens, friends, because it just got turned on this last week, okay? I ended up getting an electric vehicle off a of Craigslist. It was super sketchy. If you're like, Facebook Marketplace isn't my thing, Craigslist like, hey, I'm still Craig. I'm still over here. <laughs> <clears throat> right? There's all this weird stuff. But we got a super wonderful guy, sells it at an extraordinary rate, like better than anything around. We get the electric car. Then I find out there's a grant for like a level two charger. Some of you don't know what I'm saying. You'll find out eventually. But you'll get like this level two charger and it was like super cheap comparison because I found about this grant. Same time, I was like, well, if we're going to do this, we should explore solar. So I go to explore solar because we saw a YouTube ad what? So I found a YouTube ad, call this place up, and they're like, oh yeah, if you do this, you want to get your roof replaced, which is a really old roof. And I was like, okay, fine. So then I call the insurance company. They come out. My roof was old. It had just enough hail damage. The insurance company covers a whole new roof, whole new gutters. We get solar panels on there that are going to cut our electric costs in half, and I got a new car that I never have to pay anything on because my car got totaled. <laughs> Light. Sometimes in light, you go, God, you got me. Sometimes in darkness, you go, God, you've got to got me. You know. <laughs> and then sometimes in solitude, you're coming in prayer, and you just feel like you can't stop the words from coming out. And in that moment, you feel heard by God as you come transparently. Sometimes you come in solitude and prayer, and you come with one word, and you just sit in silence, and you explore his love. Sometimes you're reading scripture, and the spirit is just throwing stuff at you, and his love is sticking like mud on a wall just to the deep recesses of your heart. And then you come in the most unlikely of person, in the most interesting of spaces, when you gather together with the community of faith, someone looks at you and says, man, I'm so glad to see you. And you don't know how much you needed to hear that. You see, it's in growing in the knowledge of Christ's love that surpasses knowledge that we see a deeper interconnection to the fullness of God, right? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. I love the way that uh, back to Lane in the Solace of Fierce Landscapes, he goes on to say that love, after all, is the only way God can be known. And the stillness of prayer, the heart and the will can accomplish what human reason never could attain. Love, and then he quotes Thomas Merton, enters the darkness and lays hands upon what is its own. Love astounds the intellect with vivid reports of a transcendent actuality which minds can only know on earth by a confession of ignorance. And so when the mind admits that God is too great for our knowledge, love replies, know him. <laughs> you see, it's only there when you come to a God and you realize you're not in control, but it has to be in surrender, and you go to prayer because you realize I can't, but he can and he must and you surrender to Jesus afresh, you know what he can do? This is where verses 20 and 21 start to make a ton of sense in the flow of this letter. Suddenly, the Apostle Paul starts to lay out how God is able to do more in us than we can even fathom. You don't get there until you begin to plumb the depths of his love. To do more than you can fathom. Because look at the movement of this prayer. It doesn't end in like somber, sober reflection like, oh, he loves us, right? 
Instead, it's like, now unto him! <laughs> it's like the Apostle Paul just explodes with joy. Who's able to do far more than we can even ask or think? Like, that's the kind of God, like, if this is his love, I mean, how can you not? It's like when I'm sitting with a couple and they're, you know, in this honeymoon stage. Whenever I'm doing, like, premarital stuff, they're never like, oh, you know, we're making terrible decisions for the rest of our lives. It's like, what? <laughs> Every time it's like, we're making these decisions. No matter what comes, we're in this together. And that's usually where I have to be like, this is great, but that's going to destroy you. This is great. So don't do that. You get to make your call, and you're going to love each other no matter what to some degree, at least until the wedding day. So do that, I guess. But there's this element when you're in a honeymoon stage that no matter what comes, like you can't even begin to imagine how great marriage is going to be and the wonders of finally not having to say goodnight, you know, and go to separate places and all these things. That makes sense in a human capacity. But the Apostle Paul has like honeymoon language with Jesus, even though he's been a part of Christ for years. It's like it never wears off. It's actually, it's that older wedding couple again, or the 60-year-old married couple that's just like, oh man, we're just starting, right? And it's beauty and there's wonder and awe. But the problem is like a child who's been starved all of his life, we don't even know what it means to ask for a feast. He's just like, I just want some bread. And he's like, oh, my love is a feast. I mean, bread's great, to be clear. But when you look at a buffet and it's got pudding and it's got a salad bar, I love me some salad. It's got a salad bar. It's got all these different meats, all these different desserts. And it's like, enjoy. It's a Michelin-style feast, just available to you. You don't even know. Like, your mind can't compute when your whole life you've just been begging for a morsel. God's like, that's what I have. And when you start feasting on my love, if you open up to the gifts I have for you, the love I have for you, I'm going to do something glorious in you. I'm going to make you full. I'm going to make you whole. And that wholeness doesn't just stay in a nice little neat container. It just starts like bubbling over and it starts to go into your relationships. And then those relationships start bubbling over and it starts to go into your community. That's the glory that God has in store for us. And that's the power that is at work within us that he talks about. You see, God loves you more than you can grasp, more than you can even begin to fathom. And when we open ourselves up to it, that doesn't mean we always are walking in the light. Sometimes we find ourselves in the darkness, but his love is still there. If we're willing to surrender to an even greater experience of his love, will you do that? Let's let his glory shine. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word and this prayer. I'm just going to pray this over us, God. Our Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, according to the riches of your glory, we ask that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints throughout history and across the globe what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. And oh, may unto you, who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that's at work within us here in Kansas City, here within the downtown campus, here within our relationships and us personally, 
To you, God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen, amen.